Today's episode is brought to you by the Frankenmuth Convention and Visitors Bureau. Come plan your vacation at frankenmuth.org. Youthful faces peer at the visitor from photographs on the wall and in display cases, some accompanied by pictures of old men and women that the young warriors became. Other faces of those who fell are frozen exclusively forever in young adulthood. Our mission is to simply honor, respect, and remember Michigan citizens' personal contributions to our nation's military and space program. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Call of Leadership podcast. I am your host, Cliff Duvinois. What I just read to you was a small part of a wonderful composition written by the staff at the Michigan Heroes Museum in Frankenmuth. Today, we are honored to have the executive director of the Michigan Heroes Museum on the podcast today. His name is John Ryder. John, how are you? I'm doing great, Cliff. Thanks for having me on. Excellent. Tell us a little bit about... Where are you from? Where you grew up? So I grew up over in Hemlock, Michigan, not too far from here. I absolutely loved everything about my uh, childhood, whether it was being on the wrestling team or Boy Scouts uh, and participating in church and everything. It was just a, a great childhood, nothing to complain about there. And then as I grew older, I, I ended up going to college, but after my two-year degree, I allowed myself to get sidetracked uh, in retail and became an assistant manager in operations and retail for a while, worked my way up to a, a manager, and then it just didn't seem like any anything was really happening. It seemed like I was making a difference. Whatever I put out one day was gone, and I did the same thing the next day, and it, it didn't seem fulfilling for me. I know it's, it's, it is fulfilling. People need stuff, and and it, it is a great career for those people who feel fulfilled by that, but it just wasn't for me. So eventually I found my way here to the museum and I now have the best job in the world. I made the mistake of telling a board member once that it was the greatest job in the world. Heck, I'd do it for nothing. He said, really? So <laughs> so uh, I, I want to take a step back here because it, it looks like that you went from uh, retail into healthcare, which actually brought you back to Michigan. Is there something that has that has kept you in Michigan rather than going out? Because I know that you spent a stint in uh, New York. Is there something in specifically about Michigan that keeps drawing you back here? I absolutely love Michigan. Uh, more than just my family, it's a great place with great people. I've been all around the country. I used to own my own consulting firm. And uh, it, it's a, it's amazing to travel and it's amazing to meet different people with different ideas from different areas. But I can do that all right here because a lot of people travel to Michigan and and it's it's a wonderful place to to call home. Whether you're an outdoorsman or you just like hanging out with people or whatever whatever it is that you're into, Michigan has a available. So excellent. Now you have this very successful career in the healthcare network. And then at some point in time, you became the executive director of the Michigan Heroes Museum in Frankenmuth. What what brought you to the museum in the first place? So I I knew the museum as a as a child. I didn't realize that it was the same museum. I thought the museum had had uh, closed for some reason. They had they had just moved. 
though. They were down in the Schoolhouse Square Mall, and when that closed, I thought the museum stopped operating. And so I stopped coming to the museum, I and, and I, I missed it, but I didn't think much of it other than that. And then I was a Cub Master in uh, Saginaw, and one of my den leaders actually was on the board of the museum, and he said, hey, I know you probably can't afford the pay cut, but you ought to look into coming and, and working for us. We're looking for an executive director right now. I looked at my two young boys, and I thought, you know what? I'm going to have to look at them and tell them to do what they want in life and make sure it's something they enjoy, and I want to be able to set that example. So that's exactly what I did. I, I talked to my wife at the time, and we we discussed you know what it would take, and I just made the leap and said, I'm going to do it, and I never looked back. And like I said, it's the greatest job in the world. And I know that you said that the museum used to be in the in the in the schoolhouse mall, and I actually remember that. Yeah, I probably just dated myself there. Right. The so I want to talk a little bit about the history of the actual museum itself. Tell us a little bit about the the original founder of the museum. Yeah. So Stan Bozich, when he was twelve, thirteen years old, he and his brothers would walk up and down the the alleyways in Detroit and Detroit metro area. And after World War II, uh, he'd go through with a wagon and they'd collect things that were being thrown out by moms and wives of servicemen uh, and women that had served. And so as they went through, they wouldn't just go pick up the stuff. If they could get a hold of who it belonged to, they'd go in and talk to them and, and interview them and, and learn the stories behind the stuff. And I'm not saying that they didn't use it to play with and everything, but they more revered it than anything. And that's where his passion for military collecting began, was in the late 40s, early 50s. And then he joined the Navy. He served during Korea in the Navy. He got out. Uh, he worked as a firefighter in, in Royal Oak, Michigan. And he just continued his collecting. And at one point, he and an associate had come across battle standard for a Russian unit, and they offered to take it back to Russia and, and present it to the Russian government. I believe it was a World War II, like a division or regiment flag that was captured by the Germans and then recaptured by the Americans. And, and then it was brought back here. And... They happened to have possession of it, and the Soviet government at the time offered them transportation and a tour on the Trans-Siberian Railroad of all kinds of these towns and villages and everything. Um, That's so cool. Yeah, especially around the Archangel area, which we'll talk about in a little bit here, I'm guessing. But as he went through, he was looking in every little township, little village, they had a a municipal building that would have a library in one corner, a post office in another. And then in just the tiniest corner of this uh, building, they would have three to five mannequins in, in collections of soldiers from their great patriotic war, which we know as World War One. They would have that set up and in those displays and stories about those individuals. And when women in those towns 
would get married, they'd come and lay their feet at the soul at the at the feet of the memorial there. And it was something that really impressed the stand. And he says, you know what? I've already got a collection. I am interested in making this into an actual museum. And I can do it for instead of just a village or a township, I can do it for the entire state of Michigan. And that's what he set out to do. And in 1976, November of 1976, the museum received its 5013C status and the rest is history. So it's been over 43 years now. Excellent. And how many people have donated individual collections or whatnot to the museum over the years? So we've got a whole bunch of collections, but the the way that we look at our collections is we've got collections and then we've got stories. So individual stories, collections from an individual that helped tell a particular story of a man or woman that served our country. And whether they're an astronaut or a serviceman or woman, those collections there, we have over 850 collections. And I only say over 850 because we need to go through and recount. I'm sure it's over 900 now, but I, I don't know that for a fact. But what we do is we rotate those collections through our museum. We tell about 140 to 150 stories at any given time. And the stories that we tell are amazing. They're from, we've got five governors of the state of Michigan. We've got a speaker of the house and of the state of Michigan, his things in here. We've got our current secretary of state, her husband's stories in the museum. We've just got all kinds of amazing things, including the largest collection of named medals of honor anywhere in the world on public display. And, you know, who would think that in Frankenmuth, Michigan, you would be able to get that collection together. But Stan was able to do that. And if you have a moment later on, I'll I'll tell you how that came to be. So, yes, and and we'll definitely uh, cover that because I'm very interested in the history of the, the museum. I know that you said Stan was originally from Detroit, Michigan. Why was it decided to put the museum in Frankenmuth? Oh, that's a great story. So he actually tried to put it down at Fort Wayne in, in Detroit, and he tried looking in a couple of places down and around there. He had originally, he started a Holocaust museum, and that he did up in like the Oxford area. But when the other Holocaust museum opened and everything, he decided that he was going to pivot and, and tell the stories of Michigan servicemen and women. And he decided on Frankenmuth because at the time it was, and it still is, the largest tourist destination in the state of Michigan. It beats out Mackinac Island because they're closed most of the year. But it's just amazing how many people come to and through Frankenmuth. So he wanted that visibility. One thing that I would like to talk about is that in reading over the composition, the material that you sent me, there was something I didn't know. See, I've always considered myself to be a little bit of a history buff, especially when it comes to the military and to the U.S. military. But this was something brand new to me. And what I want to do is I want to read this portion from the composition that I read at the beginning of the the podcast episode. And I don't think a lot of people really know this out there. So let me read this. Among the veterans that Stan contacted were the surviving World War I polar bears, the 339th Infantry Regiment, who had fought the Bolshevik Red Army as part of the Allied intervention in the Russian Civil War. 
While still training at Camp Custer in 1918, the 339th became known as Detroit's own regiment due to the fact that it was composed almost entirely of Michigan men, the majority of whom had come from Detroit and surrounding areas. The 339th and other elements of the 85th Custer Division had been sent to North Russia in the closing days of World War I and fought valiantly through the long, bitter winter of 1918 and 1919 until their withdrawal in the June of 1919. Now, a couple of things about that that really struck me. First off, I did not know that the U.S. actually sent troops into Russia during World War I. That was new to me. Number two, I know full well that Napoleon's army, when he took them into Russia during the winter, they absolutely got their butts kicked. And somehow these boys from Detroit not only survived the winter there, but they probably would probably would have kept right on going had they not been withdrawn. Tell us tell us a little bit about this story here. So these guys went to Camp Custer. They mustered in with the 85th Division, as you mentioned. And most of those guys were drafted. Other than the non-commissioned officers and officers, they were largely draftees. And when they went over to England, they thought, like they were told, the 85th Division's headed down into France, and uh, they're going to go fight the Hun in France. And uh, But that didn't happen. They Instead of doing that, the 339th had elements of the 337th Hospital and Ambulance Corps attached to it, and the they also had the 310 engineers attached to them. And they were sent up the coast a little bit to do training, and they were placed under uh, the command of the British Army. And from there... After they were done training, they ended up going by boat up to Archangel, Russia. And uh, their first casualties were suffered on board ship because the three ships that they took over had brought back, uh, had brought to England Italian soldiers who had the, the Spanish influenza. And uh, not knowing everything we know nowadays about sanitation, some of those guys got sick and were buried at sea right on their trip over to Archangel. But of the 5,200 men, most of those guys got there on September 4th when the boats uh, landed. They stayed on the boat overnight. And then on September 5th, 1918, they ended up disembarking and uh, went right away to go find the Bolsheviks. Uh, They had originally been sent up there to retrieve or to safeguard the weapons that the Americans and British and French and Canadians and all the weapons that we had sent to Russia to help fight on the Eastern Front. Well, when Russia pulled out of the war, we were afraid that either the Russian, the the Red Army was going to get those and finish wiping out the White Russian Army, the, the imperialist loyalists, or e- even worse for us, take those weapons and sell them to the Germans and have the Germans bring those back across with their 10 or 12 divisions back to the Western Front and pummel us with some of our own weapons because that's never happened before. And <laughs> that's really something that they were they were afraid of. So they, they organized this expedition. Actually, the British and French begged Woodrow Wilson to, to join them in this. And when they did and these guys got up there, they those weapons weren't in the port. And that's the reason why they hit the ground running. And they, when they left the ship, their, sea, or their bags, or their duffels and everything were still all 
packed down below. And when they took off to go get the, to find the Bolsheviks and to find those weapons, their winter clothes were all still packed on board ship and they didn't catch up to them until just over a month later. And these guys were already complaining about how freezing cold it was up there in the middle of October. They never did capture those weapons and they just were fighting to keep the Bolsheviks away from the Archangel area, tried to expand the territory that they had and and still look for them though. That's excellent. And it was these kinds of stories that the original founder of the museum, Stan, decided that he wanted to start capturing and building the museum. Absolutely. He he loved the stories of, of the polar bears. He actually, he was an honorary polar bear, one of the last honorary polar bears. His brother was the last honorary polar bear. And Stan told them, he said, hey, you know, when I get my museum up and going and everything, I will have a place for your stories to be told indefinitely. And since Stan opened the museum, we've always had a polar bear section that we rotate stories of those uh, men in and out of. Of the 5,500 that served, we've got over 60 of their stories here in the museum. And they're amazing stories uh, of bitter retreats and snows that you just couldn't hardly walk through on sleds pulled by reindeer and and mules. You couldn't make it up. And I have to ask this question because I know you said you've got quite the collection of stories in there. This is probably just purely selfish on my part. Are all these stories, have they been put together in a book that people can purchase there at the museum? We have not yet. We, we've, got all, we've, we've got all the stories. They're all available digital. We have not yet put them to a book. It's just due to time. I've got myself and two staff members here, and it's just largely a, a time issue as it is anything else. Sure. And, and the reason why I ask that question is because as I've as I've gotten older, the, the types of books, especially when it comes to history, I mean, I love historical fiction. Uh, there's some writers out there that really do put a lot of research into what they write, and it really does make you feel like it's there. But the only other thing that I found is absolutely comparable is firsthand accounts. You know, somebody writing it using their own words, using their own language that absolutely makes it feel like it's there versus uh, somebody who's just, you know, done research and looked at other books and compiled it into a bunch of facts. So, um, Oh, yeah. No, no doubt about it. the journals and the diaries and the scribble home letters home and everything here. Those are the best. Uh, they're just amazing. Hey everyone, Cliff here. First, I want to take a quick second to thank you for listening and to let you know that we're going to be back and we're going to talk about Michigan's contribution to the space program and how the museum is working hard to make sure that you and your family are safe should you choose to visit. But first, let's thank our sponsors. Today's episode is brought to you by the Frankenmuth Convention and Visitors Bureau. German architecture, chicken dinners, and the world's largest Christmas store are just the beginning. Frankenmuth is quickly becoming known for so much more than chicken and Christmas. From trendy dining to timeless horse-drawn carriage rides, kayaking to adventure parks, ballparks, water parks, regular parks, sweet Moses, there's a lot to do in one trip to Frankenmuth. Visit the must-sees of Little Bavaria, then grab your crew and find something new waiting to be discovered. Pack a picnic blanket, order takeout from your favorite place, and let your kids delight in exploring while soaking up the little moments in life. Join the generations of families in our hotels during the 175th anniversary season in 2020. The perfect road trip awaits you. 
Start planning your unforgettable family vacation at frankamuth.org. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone. Now, for this next part of our podcast, I could probably talk to you all day about this. But there's another part of the museum that I want to focus on, and I want to read another portion of the composition. And I want to read something else. The Michigan Heroes Museum focuses not just on the military's past, nor just on combat, but the museum also honors the peacetime bravery of Michigan's astronauts and space pioneers from the beginnings of rocket science to the marvel of modern spaceflight. And as we're recording this podcast episode, the the manned SpaceX rocket uh, just went up into space. And I know that that has fired the imaginations of uh, a lot of young people, a lot of kids that uh, are growing up right now. And I'm very excited about that. But I'm also excited to, uh, to talk with you a bit more about Michigan's involvement with the with the space program. So share with, share with us some of the thoughts or, or why the decision was made to start including the Michigan astronauts and space pioneers as part of the museum. So the early astronauts from Michigan, most of them were out of the military. You know, they came from the military, whether it was a Marine Corps flying or a Navy pilot or a Navy doctor or Air Force or Army, they they all had flight time as in as a flight surgeon or whatever, and so they were largely selected out of the military. The guys from Michigan. Now, approximately half the astronauts selected early on in the space program, forty to fifty percent were a science background, and the other forty or the other fifty to sixty percent were uh, military, but the ones that actually flew were more military than, than non-military. And so the state of Michigan, we're lucky to have be in the heart of the Big Ten. And most of these guys went to either Purdue or <clears throat> Ohio or Michigan or, or Illinois or Northwestern. And most of those early astronauts on top of their military career, they had engineering backgrounds also. And so we're just in a really great place. The only state with more astronauts to their credit than Michigan is Ohio. So I tell you, us Michigan people were made of something a little bit different. (laughs) Right. Exactly. That's awesome. And I was actually surprised when I was doing some research for this podcast and I looked up a list of astronauts that have come from Michigan, that one of the astronauts that went to the moon, Al Warden, he is a, a Michigander as well. Is any of his, is any of his, I don't want to say memorabilia, but any of his awards or anything, is that part of the museum as well? Yeah. So we, we do have a display on Al. Unfortunately, Al passed away within the last year here. It yes. was quite a surprise. He was, a, he was an amazing guy, a good friend, and just a guy that you'll never forget. But he, he absolutely loved his time on Apollo 15. He said that he had the best job there, even though he never went to the surface of the moon. He said as as he was in orbit, he had to use the sextant, take readings, make sure they were on the right course to pick the astronauts back up that went to the surface. And But when they, he said, so about 10 minutes worth of work of every hour. Other than that, he says, I was able to look out the porthole back at Earth, at the sun, at the stars, and at the moon's surface. He says, 
I had the best job ever because those astronauts that were on the moon, they had to work their tails off in order to uh, collect samples and, and do all the tests that they were given. So he said, I wouldn't have traded places with anybody. Plus, uh, as a little uh, gift to him for not going to the surface of the moon, they allowed him to do the first spacewalk orbiting the moon. It was the first extra, they considered an extraterrestrial spacewalk. And so when the astronauts came back from the surface of the moon, he, he ended up doing the spacewalk there, and he said it was just absolutely amazing. Yeah. You hear that, Michigan? Represent. <laughs> right. God, I love these stories. I could sit and listen to this stuff all day. Now, for the, for the museum itself, one of the things that I do want to talk about, and I know I could talk to you about the space program forever because it's just something that I've just been very passionate about ever ever since I grew up in the, in the 70s, and I've probably drinking probably 100 gallons of Tang over my over my span of my lifetime, but the one thing I do want to talk about is we're we're just a few weeks away, hopefully, from getting the stay at home order lifted. And an article I read that was posted by MLive.com said that roughly about sixty percent of Michiganders are ready to go. They are ready to hit the road. They are ready to travel. Obviously, one of those places is going to be Frankenmuth. Obviously, one of the places that they will be heading towards is your museum. And what I'd like to do is, is just kind of, kind of ask you, what are, what are some of the measures that you are putting in place so that, you know, people can come in and get the experience, be able to connect with, with these Michigan heroes, but while, while keeping them and their families safe. Sure. Well, we're, we're going to take a look at the, the next orders that come out. And and as we're allowed to open, we're going to follow those to a T. But in addition to that, we're going to be wiping down light switches, door handles, and everything every 10 to 15 minutes. We're going to be sanitizing everything throughout the day. We're going to be going ahead and offering masks to those people who neglect to bring it or forget to bring one. We just want to make sure that everybody uh, can come in here and can do so in a safe manner. We've got a lot of older visitors, and, and I would hate to place any of them at risk because they're amazing people that we get to come through here that understand what it is that we're doing and honoring, respecting, and remembering our servicemen and women and astronauts. And we're just going to do everything we can to make sure that they have a safe visit here at the museum. Yeah, that's absolutely excellent. Because I know that, especially in lieu of this podcast, uh, I, I, I myself, I, I obviously I'm not senior citizen, but uh, obviously I, I would love to come back over there to the museum and see what it's really become. Cause it's probably been 20 plus years since, since I have been there, which uh, makes me, I guess, a horrible Michigan resident. <laughs> so anyways, I do want to get back over there again and, and check it out. So thank you for, thank you for sharing that with us. If anyone in our audience wants to connect with you or follow uh, the museum online, what, what is the best way for them to do that? So look up uh, Michigan Heroes Museum on Facebook. That's that's a great source. We post stuff up there quite often. Or just go to our website, M-I-H-E-R-O-E-S.org. So it's myheroes.org with an I instead of a Y. So myheroes.org. And, and go to Facebook, like us, follow us, and see what we're doing. I, we're doing some Facebook Lives now and and we're getting some of those stories out there for people to be able to enjoy. Excellent. 
And do, do you also offer the, I know you said some Facebook lives. Do you also have the virtual tours available on your website? Not yet, but we're, okay. we're, we're doing those with the, with the uh, Facebook live. Eventually I'll take those and do a, the a best of the best type thing and place them on our, on our website. So, okay. All right. Excellent. And with that, John, I want to thank you so much for being on the podcast today and for covering us and, and talking to us about everything that's on here. I'd love to have you back on in the future to talk a little bit more in depth, maybe share some of these really fantastic stories that the, the, that the museum is having. So I, I would really love that opportunity to, to have that. That sounds wonderful. I'm looking forward to it. Hey everyone, if you enjoyed this episode, then subscribe to our email newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get new episode announcements. You'll get all kinds of great behind the scenes information on upcoming guests. Plus you'll receive special offers from our guests and partners that you can only get through the email newsletter. Subscribing is quick, easy, and best of all, it is free. Just go to callleadership.com email, type in your email address and you're done. Once again, that's calloflearship.com slash email. I'll catch you in the next episode.